Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In April of 1924, news traveled throughout Oregon that three fur trappers had vanished from their cabin near the city of Bend. And 120 miles away in Portland, fur seller Carl Schumacher came to a chilling realization. Eddie Clark, what's a game warden doing away from his post? Bit antsy alone in the woods, Carl. You read the story in the Oregonian about the missing trappers in Bend? Yep, scary world out there. Say, where'd you get these furs? Don't get too many silver foxes around here. I know. I got them on January 22nd. Bought four fox furs off a man named Ed Nichols. Carl, how close did you read that Oregonian article? I mean, it was a busy morning. Because Edward Nichols is one of those missing trappers, and he was last seen on January 15th. So, that means... Carl Schumacher? You may be the last person to have seen those men alive. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our final episode on the Lava Lake murders. Last week, we discussed what led the three victims to spend a long winter trapping fur in a remote Oregon cabin. This week, we'll cover the discovery of their bodies, the investigation into their deaths, and the attempt to bring their killer to justice. By April of 1924, Sarah Wilson was praying for a sign that her 36-year-old son, Roy, was alive. Roy Wilson worked as a logger for the Brooks Scanlon Lumber Company in Bend, Oregon. But the previous winter, Roy and his 23-year-old co-worker, Dewey Morris, set off to a remote cabin by Little Lava Lake, 25 miles away. They'd gone at the behest of Roy's longtime friend, 53-year-old Edward Nichols. They were there to collect fox pelts, but Edward's presence made Sarah nervous for her own son's safety. Edward had spent the previous winter at the cabin with a fur trapper who went by Lee Collins. But Lee Collins' real name was Charles Kimsey. He was an escapee from an Idaho prison. Kimsey accused Edward of cheating him out of his fair pay. In retaliation, he robbed both Edward Nichols and the cabin owner, Ed Logan. He also swore he'd get revenge. On his way out of town in August of 1923, Kimsey assaulted taxi driver William Harrison before disappearing without a trace. 
Worried that Kimsey would come back that winter and make good on his threats, Edward Nichols persuaded Roy and Dewey to stay at Lava Lake with him during the next trapping season. Roy was an ex-Marine, and Dewey was a young, strapping logger, so they would make the perfect backup if Kimsey returned. Roy told his mother, Sarah, he'd be home for good in February of 1924. But by April, the trappers still hadn't returned. She worried something terrible had happened. Sarah persuaded her son-in-law, Hervey Innes, to trek up to the cabin along with Dewey's brother, Owen Morris. There, they discovered Sarah's motherly intuition was spot on. The cabin was deserted and had been for a while. There was moldy food in the oven. The calendar was still turned to January. And despite the snow outside, the trappers hunting in snow gear laid in the house, clean and unused. In addition, Ed Logan's five valuable foxes were missing, and they found blood and shotgun shells on the ground. Hervey and Owen knew they had to search further. A half a mile away at Big Lava Lake, they found the trapper's sled at the frozen lakeshore. It was stained with more blood. On April 15, 1924, Deschutes County Sheriff Burt Roberts sent the best man for the job to investigate, Deputy Sheriff Clarence Adams. He was the former district game warden and knew the woods well. Adams, I needed to track down some missing foxes. Pardon? Sheriff, what about the men? I've got people on that, but it strikes me as peculiar that Ed Logan's silver foxes are missing from their pen. I'd say they ran off to hunt, but their food trays are still full. Now you know how pricey their pelts are. You think they were stolen? Exactly, Adams. Follow the foxes. As the search began, news of the disappearance spread through the town of Bend like a chilling cautionary tale. Many Bend residents trapped fur or ran camps in the isolated woods. They probably worried that something like this could happen to them, too. One of these men was local camp manager Alan Wilcoxon. When he heard about the trapper's plight, he realized he was one of the last people to see them alive. Allen told Sheriff Roberts that on January 15, 1924, he spent the night at the cabin on his way back to his camp. Oh, we had a nice dinner and all of them were cheery. Probably because they had $3,000 of fur they were itching to sell. That's all you remember? We may have had a few tipples that night. And that was the last time I saw them. God bless their souls. Meanwhile, three days into the police investigation, Deputy Sheriff Adams got the first major break in the case. He made a grisly discovery at the Lava Lake cabin. I need a bag! What for? Whoa! Deputy Adams, are, are those Ed Logan's foxes? Frozen and skinned. Poor critters. Now get these back to Sheriff, quick, before it gets dark. But the find likely only frustrated Sheriff Roberts. So, Ed Logan's pricey silver foxes were killed and skinned. I'm hoping the first turn up somewhere close. What about the blood sample from the sled? Local Doc says it's not human blood, but all he's got is a rinky-dink microscope. I'm having the sample sent to the med school at the University of Oregon, hoping the brainiacs tell me differently. Understood. I'll keep investigating the men's trap lines. Sure. 
Gotta occupy ourselves until Big Lava Lake melts, I suppose. You think the men are under the lake, don't you? Case won't crack until the ice does. The next day, April 19th, the investigators got another big break. Four of the missing fox pelts were found at the Schumacher Fur Company in Portland, 120 miles away from Bend. Edward Nichols' trapping license was used on January 22, 1924, to sell furs to Carl Schumacher. When Portland authorities spoke to Carl, they learned an unsettling truth. Mr. Schumacher, I'm going to show you a picture of Edward Nichols. I need you to tell me if he's one of the men who sold you furs on January 22nd. No, sir. This is not the Edward Nichols who came into my store. This meant the last time Edward Nichols, Roy Wilson, and Dewey Morris were truly seen alive was on January 15th, 1924, when Alan Wilcoxon had dinner at the Lava Lake cabin. On January 22nd, two unknown men showed up in Portland and used Edward's stolen trapping license to sell Logan's furs. Portland traffic cop Walter Bender also reported that he met two men on January 22nd. They were carrying pelts and asked him to recommend a fur seller. When Bender was shown a picture of Edward Nichols, he didn't recognize the man in the photo either. In an interview with the Oregonian, a Portland deputy named Christofferson presented his theory. The trail is an old one and it's cold. The fact that the murders were committed about January 15th and that the furs were sold here a week later would indicate that the man who sold the furs and who exhibited Nichols' trapper's license is the man responsible for the triple killing. All of this must have overwhelmed Ed Logan, the owner of the cabin. He'd already had trouble at his cabin in 1923 when he was robbed by Charles Kimsey. Now, less than a year later, Ed Logan found himself searching for clues about an even more ominous occurrence at his cabin. Knowing a bloody sled was found by Big Lava Lake, Logan and Deputy Adams ventured onto the frozen lake surface for answers. About a hundred yards out, they found one. Adams? Get out here! Look, a hole. It's kind of frozen over now, but you see the edges? Doesn't that look like blood? Maybe so. Sure as hell doesn't look like Mother Nature's doing to me. More like someone took a hatchet to the ice in a hurry. And wait, look! It's hair. Brown and fine. Just like Roy Wilson's. If someone shoved the bodies in here, we gotta get a team to break up the ice. No. Feel the air. That spring breeze? Give it a few days and this ice will break up in no time. After discovering the frozen over hole in the lake, this was no longer a missing persons case. Investigators were convinced Edward, Roy, and Dewey were dead. As they waited for the ice to melt, Sheriff Roberts and Deputy Adams checked out other leads. They investigated a trapper and moonshiner named Indian Erickson, who had a bad reputation in a camp six miles south at Cultus Lake. But he had a solid alibi and was ruled out. They searched Ed, Roy, and Dewey's trap lines, but all they found in the untended traps were remains of a skunk, four wild foxes, and 12 wild marten. Some sources mentioned that more physical evidence was found around the lake and cabin, 
a missing tooth, and a bloody hammer in the tool shed. Finally, with Mother Nature's help, the icy lake surface melted. At 5.30 p.m. on April 23rd, investigators found the missing trappers. Deputy Adams and Hervey Innes were coming back from a trapline search when they stopped by Big Lava Lake to catch fish for dinner. Hervey, look. Over there, down the shore, floating. What are those? I think they're bodies. Three of them. Get the boat, now. Edward, Roy, and Dewey were dead in the water. Horrific injuries covered their partly frozen bodies. Edward had bullet holes on his face and neck, and Roy had wounds on his ear and shoulder. The youngest victim, Dewey, had the most gruesome injuries of all. Someone had beaten his face into a bloody, unrecognizable mess. The bodies were rushed to Bend, where county physician Ray Hendershot examined them. This gruesome triple murder was undoubtedly beyond the scope of anything the small town doctor had ever seen. Edward's jaw was partly blown off by a shotgun, and he also had another bullet lodged in his throat. His reading glasses, which he wore indoors, were still on his body, and his pocket watch was stopped at 9.10. We don't know if that's a.m. or p.m., but it likely stopped when Edward was plunged into Big Lava Lake. The glasses and lack of outerwear indicated he may have been killed indoors or had rushed outside suddenly. The shotgun wounds indicated the killer could have shot him from a distance, perhaps in a sneak attack. Roy had a shotgun wound in the back of his head by his right ear. He also had shotgun wounds on his right side, which blew off the top of his shoulder. Like Edward, the injuries indicated Roy may have been shot from a distance. And finally, the brutally massacred Dewey. He'd been shot through the middle of his left arm, but that's not what killed him. Dewey's face was battered by blunt force trauma. This was likely related to the bloody hammer discovered at the cabin. Unlike Edward and Roy, Dewey was killed up close, perhaps after the shooter failed to take him down with a bullet to the arm. Investigators placed the date of death around January 15, 1924, the same day they had all been seen alive by Alan Wilcoxon. It might seem obvious to suspect Alan, since he admitted to visiting the cabin on January 15th. However, it appears he was never seen as a suspect, maybe because Sheriff Roberts already had one firmly in mind. He just needed confirmation from police officer Walter Bender in Portland before proceeding. Officer Bender, here's a photo from Sheriff Roberts in Bend. Can you tell me if this is the man who pretended to be Edward Nichols? Yes, absolutely. That's him. That's the man I spoke to. With Officer Bender's confirmation, Sheriff Roberts was ready to make his suspicions public. It is my suspicion that the killer responsible for these crimes is Charles Kimsey, and I am offering a $1,500 reward for anyone who could bring him and his accomplice in. The hunt for Kimsey was on. When we return, will follow the investigation as it closes in on its main suspect. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. 
But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? Do you picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. In late April of 1924, Deschutes County Sheriff Burt Roberts named 38-year-old Charles Kimsey as his prime suspect in the murder of three trappers at Oregon's Lava Lakes. There was just one problem. No one knew where Kimsey was. Damn it, Adams. This devil Kimsey is taunting me. I know, Sheriff. But I've been reading old Charlie Kimsey's record, and it seems to me he's been a slippery fella his whole life. Charles Hyde Kimsey was born on October 12, 1885 in Caldwell, Ohio. His parents divorced in 1892, when young Charles was just seven. He dropped out of the ninth grade in 1901, but that is all that's known about his childhood. Likewise, there's no trace of Kimsey's teens and early 20s. All we know is at the age of 28, he began his life of crime. Kimsey was arrested for stealing grain in Blaine County, Idaho, in the summer of 1914. He was charged with grand larceny, which means the grain had significant value. The following June, he served a prison sentence at a work farm at the Idaho State Penitentiary. It was a chance for him to turn his life around. Yeah! Yeah! Hey! <laughs> hey! Somebody stop that horse! Kimsey! But instead, in October, Kimsey escaped on a stolen workhorse. Oddly, he stayed in Idaho and took refuge at his older brother's home. Then, he applied for a job as a sheep herder for the Fall Creek Sheep Company. All right, kid. Anything I should know about? Criminal record, angry ex-wife, anything else that would disturb my flock? No, sir. Just trying to make a living. Good man. Remind me your name again? It's Bob. Bob Dales. It wasn't the last time Charles Kimsey used an alias to escape his past. Sometimes he was Bob Dales, or Thomas Rose. Other times, it was Tom Collins, perhaps a quirky ode to the popular drink. His next alias was one we know well, Lee Collins. In the spring of 1922, 37-year-old Kimsey came to Oregon's Elk Lake, 25 miles west of Bend. He worked at a campsite managed by Karen Degermark and quickly endeared himself to her. Collins, you missed a spot. This floor should be so clean we could eat off of it. Oh, is that so? Miss Dagermark, are you asking me out to dinner? Collins, you rascal. That's inappropriate. <laughs> Save that silver tongue for my customers. Yes, ma'am. When asked about Kimsey, Karen Dagermark said he was one of the best employees she'd ever had. It seems he charmed everyone he met. 
and he quickly made new friends in the Deschutes Forest. One such friend was Alan Wilcoxon, who eventually took over Karen Degermark's camp. He was later the last man to see Ed, Roy, and Dewey alive. We don't know how close they were, and the friendship doesn't necessarily paint Wilcoxon in a bad light. After all, Kimsey was working a normal job and living a normal life, albeit under a fake name. Kimsey blew up that sense of normalcy after he robbed Edward Nichols and Ed Logan and fled Oregon in 1923. Then, Kimsey became a suspect in the Lava Lake murders, and Sheriff Roberts sounded the alarm to find Kimsey that April of 1924. Even though they knew who they were looking for, they had no idea where they would find him. With so many aliases, Kimsey's trail was cold. Edward, Roy, and Dewey were buried at Ben's Greenwood Cemetery on April 25, 1924. They had matching headstones and were interred side by side. The mood was somber as Reverend F.H. Beard gave a heartfelt sermon. These men were the victims of an inhuman catastrophe that causes us to cry for justice and vengeance. God rest their souls and God bless their loved ones. As the trappers' families grieved, Sheriff Roberts pursued the case. After the funeral, he received word that break-ins had occurred in two cabins on the Mackenzie River Trail in late January of 1924, just days after the murders. Adams, we've got a break-in at a cabin at Frizzell Crossing around January 19th, and then another one on the 20th. Both times, the intruder spent the night and stole some food before moving on. Frizzell Crossing's about 12 miles west of the Lava Lakes. Looks like they were hiking along the McKenzie River Trail. If they were on that trail by January 20th, how easy would it be for them to get to Portland and sell those furs on the 22nd? Sheriff Roberts, that's tough terrain. They'd have to cover 35 miles of terrain on the 21st. He'd have to be an experienced hiker. Mm, Kimsey knows these woods. I'd buy it, especially if he had a partner helping him along. Maybe they hitched a ride with someone on a wagon? Fair enough. If they got out of the woods and made it to Lowell by the night of the 21st, or even early on the 22nd, they could have hopped on the train at the Natron cutoff rail and made it to Portland before noon. Well, plenty of time to make it to Schumacher's store. Adams, this is Kimsey's trail. Based on this information, investigators adjusted the suspected date of the murders from January 15th to January 18th. But even with this extra insight, it came too late. Kimsey was still out of sight. Sheriff Roberts kept Deputy Adams assigned to the case over the next few years. But no new leads arose, and no progress was made. The case took another turn for the worse in 1927, when Adams was killed in a car accident. In 1928, Sawmill owner and friend of Alan Wilcoxon replaced Roberts as sheriff. With the two most dedicated investigators dead or out of office, the Lava Lake murder investigation ground to a halt. Charles Kimsey, on the other hand, was just getting started. From 1925 on, Kimsey committed a dizzying array of crimes that cemented his reputation as an unabashed criminal. He forged a bad check for $715, 
that's over $10,000 today, in Pocatello, Idaho in 1925. Later in December, he arrived in Salt Lake City under the name William Becker. He was hired to help a man named David Howard to drive him from Salt Lake to Tampa, Florida. When they stopped in Las Vegas, Kimsey allegedly stabbed Howard to death and dumped his body in the desert. Kimsey stole the car, adopted the name W.R. Howe, and vacationed in San Diego, spending all of Howard's traveler's checks in the process. After that, he conned a man named D.R. Hurd into helping him drive Howard's car to Tampa. He soon made Hurd his accomplice in an armed robbery on the road. All right, everybody, listen up. Hand over your valuables, and maybe we all make it out alive. Hurd, grab that lady's watch. Yes, sir. Later, Kimsey robbed Hurd, tied him to a tree, and drove off. He sold David Howard's car to two other robbers for $25, then moved to Wyoming in 1927. The next year in Idaho, he was accused of forging bad checks, selling stolen wool, and killing another man. Though Kimsey had police departments in multiple states after him, he always seemed to slip from their grip. If he committed the Lava Lake murders, it was as if his first killings had fully unleashed his deadly criminal nature. For nine years, he seemed unstoppable. But his luck finally ran out on March 9th, 1933, in Kalispell, Montana. Charles Kimsey, you're under arrest. (laughs) Officer, you must be confused. You see, my name is Tom Collins, not... What did you call me? Quincy? Yeah, yeah, save it for the judge, Collins. Kimsey wasn't arrested in Montana for murder or robbery, but rather for the only crime to which he could be concretely traced. Check forgery. But he wasn't kept in Montana for long. Step out of the cell. You're taking a little trip. I suppose I'll miss this Montana hospitality. Where are they taking me? Oregon, I heard. What? Oregon? What's got you so skittish, Kimsey? They think I killed those trappers, but I didn't. I was in Colorado working on the Moffat Tunnel at the time. I didn't kill them. Deschutes County Sheriff Claude McCauley successfully petitioned to have Kimsey return to Oregon to be questioned about the Lava Lake murders. Upon hearing of his transfer, Kimsey was allegedly very upset. He immediately insisted that he had an alibi for the Trapper murders. He oddly knew what crimes he was suspected of committing long before anybody had told him what he was wanted for. After nine years on the run, Charles Kimsey was headed back to face the wrath of Bend. Up next, we'll find out exactly what happens to suspected murderer Charles Kimsey. And now, the conclusion to our story. After a nine-year manhunt, 47-year-old Charles Kimsey arrived at Oregon's Deschutes County Jail on March 16, 1933. There, he was charged with three counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Edward Nichols, Roy Wilson, and Dewey Morris. Kimsey expected these charges, but to his surprise, he was also charged for the August 1923 assault and robbery of taxi driver William Harrison. Authorities knew the evidence in the Harrison case was stronger, and in the meantime, 
they had an excuse to probe further into the Lava Lake mystery. Somewhat unusually, Deschutes County Sheriff Claude McCauley let victim Roy Wilson's brother-in-law, Hervey Innes, question Kimsey. Hervey was a civilian, an active helper in the 1924 investigation, and he was emotionally invested in the case. Kimsey, the sooner you talk, the sooner I leave you alone. I want to know what happened at the cabin. I don't have to talk to you. You ain't a cop. Roy was my wife's brother. I brought him to that cabin. I spent days telling his poor mother that nothing happened to him, that she was wrong. And then I had to tell her she was right. So go ahead and tell me how you couldn't have killed them. I was working at the Moffat Tunnel in January, in Colorado. Take your little tantrum somewhere else. I'm not your guy. Band authorities quickly got to work checking Kimsey's alibi. As local news outlets eagerly tracked the story, the public pressured investigators to close the case and prove Kimsey was the Lava Lakes killer. If Kimsey's name or some of the many aliases he has used can be found on the Moffat Tunnel payroll, or if canceled checks can be produced, the solution to the Lava Lake murder may be just as remote as it was on that April day in 1924. It turns out Kimsey was telling the truth. He did start a building job on December 16, 1923, at Colorado's Moffat Tunnel. Of course, he signed on under the alias Tom Collins, so even Kimsey's truths were peppered with lies. But the job being real didn't completely eliminate him as a suspect. Kimsey's job at the tunnel ended on January 7, 1924. He collected his pay and left that day. It's possible that he went back to Oregon and committed the murders on January 18th. An unnamed local trapper told Sheriff McCauley that he saw Kimsey in Oregon on January 12th, 1924. Apparently, Kimsey said he was going to set up camp at Cultus Lake, six miles south of the Lava Lakes. This statement placed Kimsey in Oregon around the time of the murders, but there was still no way to prove he was actually at the Lava Lakes on the day the trappers died. Hoping to attack the case from a different angle, authorities took Kimsey to Portland on April 1st, 1933. There, he was put in a police lineup. Authorities brought in traffic officer Walter Bender and fur seller Carl Schumacher and asked them to identify Kimsey among the men in the lineup. Officer Bender, do you recognize any of the men here as Charles Kimsey, the man you encountered on January 22nd, 1924? Gosh, you know, it's been nine years. One of these fellas maybe looks familiar, but I'm just not 100% sure. Kimsey had aged significantly in his last crime-filled decade, and Schumacher and Bender couldn't confirm he was the man they'd met nine years ago. Investigators could no longer reliably place Kimsey in Portland on January 22, 1924, a fact they had previously relied on. Without a confession, hard evidence, or reliable eyewitnesses placing Kimsey at the cabin on the day of the murders, authorities had no grounds to pursue the murder charges. But they could put Kimsey on trial for his 1923 armed assault and robbery of William Harrison. 
In a way, the trial was just a pretense. While Harrison certainly deserved justice, most of Bend felt Kimsey was on trial for the Lava Lake murders. So much so that Kimsey's attorney, Ross Farnham, had to dismiss several jury candidates during the selection process. Ma'am, is there anything that would prevent you from serving in an unbiased capacity as a juror in the matter of the Harrison assault and robbery? Well, yes, sir. Can you elaborate? He killed Ed Nichols and his friends in 1923. I mean, everybody knows it. With such biased public opinion, it's virtually impossible to say that Kimsey's trial was fair. Charles Kimsey's trial officially began on April 20th, 1933, and it was the hottest ticket in town. The trial against the infamous Charles Hyde Kimsey has begun, with over 150 spectators eager for answers and burning for justice. A fight nearly broke out when bailiff Sam Newell kicked early arrivals out of their prime bench seats. But of course, he had to make room for the actual jurors. The trial started off with a bang. Harrison took the stand and identified Kimsey as his attacker. Prosecutors claimed Kimsey should be charged for attempted murder since he tried to poison Harrison and left him for dead. But Kimsey was clever. Mr. Kimsey, are you saying you did not intend to murder William Harrison? I tied him up and left him in that cistern so I could make my getaway before he could call the police. Sure, I had a pistol, but all I did was clock him over the head with it. I spared his life. Kimsey's lawyer argued that he couldn't be charged with attempted murder since he had an opportunity to murder Harrison, but chose not to. Kimsey successfully dodged a murder charge, but that's as far as his ingenuity got him. On April 22nd, Kimsey was found guilty of assault and robbery while armed with a dangerous weapon. Judge T.E.J. Duffy sentenced him to life in prison. In a statement on the day of the sentencing, Duffy made his feelings clear. Kimsey is absolutely without any moral respectability. The attack on Harrison was the most heinous crime ever committed in the most cold-blooded manner. Calling Kimsey's assault of Harrison the most heinous crime ever committed is a bit of a stretch, but perhaps even Judge Duffy could not stay neutral when sentencing the suspected Lava Lake killer. With his fate sealed, Kimsey began his life sentence at the Oregon State Penitentiary, where he quickly got up to his old tricks. On August 5th, 1945, he attempted to escape the prison labor gang, but guards quickly caught him. After 12 uneventful years, he came up for parole in June 1957, the judge at this hearing was unaware of Kinsey's likely involvement in the Lava Lake murders. From my understanding of this man's case, no lives were lost as a result of this crime. Therefore, I feel that it is possible that his sentence is too severe and would recommend that his sentence be commuted to a term more in keeping with his crime. On August 5th, 1957, Charles Kimsey was released after 24 years in prison. He was 72 years old. He returned to Idaho and never committed another crime again, at least none that we know of. Kimsey died in 1976 at the age of 91. With him died the chance for the world to know what really happened at the Lava Lake cabin in the woods. 
While he was never convicted, it's safe to say Charles Kimsey is the most likely Lava Lake killer. He had a criminal past and a clear motive. Revenge on Edward Nichols and Ed Logan for cheating him out of his fur profits. I agree. While Kimsey's guilt feels like a given, the question still remains. Who was his unidentified accomplice in the Lava Lake murders? The second man who was seen selling furs in Portland. In her book, The Trapper Murders, Melanie Tupper presents a theory. Kimsey's sidekick was the twisted serial killer, Ray Van Buren Jackson. Well, alleged twisted serial killer, we have to take this darkly imaginative theory with a grain of salt. In the late 1890s, 20-something Ray Jackson was arrested for forgery and robbery and spent three years in the Oregon State Penitentiary. He reinvented himself in the early 1900s as a schoolteacher in secluded Silver Lake, Oregon. He nicknamed himself Professor, but shades of his past remained. He kept a baseball bat and a revolver at his desk to intimidate his students and had no qualms about disciplining them with whips. Jackson retired after trying to embezzle from the school district. Though his crimes were mainly financial, Jackson was also a background player in many suspicious deaths. In 1904, he was the last person to see businessman J. Creed Kahn alive after they had breakfast together. Kahn disappeared that day, and his body was found seven weeks later in a suicide that seemed like it may have been staged. Before his death, Khan was trying to find out who stole $3,000 from his bank account. Soon afterwards, Jackson bought around $3,000 in cattle. In 1930, Jackson's neighbor Ira Bradley was found dead, his face beaten in by the butt of a revolver, eerily similar to how the Lava Lake victim Dewey Morris died. The connections don't end there either, because Ray Jackson Charles Kimsey's distant cousin. Jackson was born around 1870 and was 15 years older than Kimsey. There was bad blood between their families and they were not raised near each other. However, Topper theorizes they may have met at the 1920 wedding of Archie Warner in Silver Lake, where Jackson lived. Warner was a friend of Kimsey's and later testified on his behalf in the 1933 trial. Say, who are you? I feel like I know a lot of Archie's pals, but we haven't met. The name's Kimsey. Charles Kimsey. Of the Idaho Kimseys? How do you know that? Why, boy, my name is Ray Jackson, and I believe we may just be cousins. It's a fascinating theory. Two long-lost cousins with a penchant for crime who teamed up to commit one of Oregon's grisliest murders. But despite being around many deaths, Jackson was never formally accused of murder. The only crimes he was ever found guilty of were forgery and theft. Even if Jackson was secretly a killer, we then have to presume Kimsey somehow knew this fact or had some other reason to request Jackson's help with the murders. Perhaps he trusted him due to their familial connection. However, they were distant relatives also, Jackson was 54 at the time of the murders. If Kimsey wanted help taking down two woodsmen and a marine, it seems odd that he would ask his middle-aged schoolteacher cousin. 
The theory seems a little more far-fetched when we consider his age and occupation. Perhaps a more plausible suspect is Alan Wilcoxon. He was the manager of the campsite who was friendly with both the victims and Kimsey. Friendly enough that Kimsey used him as a character witness in a 1940 parole hearing. Crucially, Wilcoxon was the last man to see the trappers alive on January 15, 1924, the original suspected date of the murders. If Kimsey was really in Oregon in early January of 1924, it's possible he could have called on his old friend Alan to help him settle an old score. Collins, what are you doing here? If anyone sees you... I need your help, Alan. I want what's mine at Ed Logan's cabin. Did you visit them like I asked you to? Yeah, I did. They're high on the hog, loaded with furs. So, the time is right. What are you thinking? Wilson's a damn Marine. Even if you go in there, guns a-blazing, you don't stand a chance. That's why I need you by my side. Oh, hell, Collins. These guys are my friends. Look, they might have screwed you over, but can't you just... I don't know. Steal the foxes? That's what I intend to do. Then why the shotgun? <laughs> Can I have a little fun while I'm at it? Alan Wilcoxon was never a suspect, despite his friendship with Kimsey. Perhaps because he'd freely told authorities that he was the last man to see them, he was able to hide in plain sight. He was also close with Deschutes County Sheriff Claude McCauley. Could McCauley have avoided looking into his good friend? It's possible, but it may not matter in the end. Any accomplice was likely just extra manpower. Kimsey was the criminal with a killer grudge. Kimsey was almost definitely a guilty man. The 1924 Lava Lake murders scarred the city of Bend and altered the course of several families' lives. They were a product of their unique time and place in American history, a world where isolation was a norm, technology could only get you so far, and business disputes might be settled with shotgun ambushes. Years later, the Oregon Geographic Names Board paid respect to the victims by naming a set of three buttes near Crane Prairie, the Three Trappers. Their murders were never solved. But similar slayings will likely never happen again. The Deschutes Forest is no longer what it was back in 1924. A mysterious place rife with traps for unsuspecting animals. And unsuspecting people. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the Lava Lake murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Trapper murders by Melanie Tupper to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar 
Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Sky King, Heston Mosier, Jack Shulruff, and Dan Velasquez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.